Good morning. I am uh, the aforementioned uh, Gary Yoakum. I am not the lead pastor here, but I am the oldest pastor here. So I am blessed to have the privilege to stand before you today to open the Word of God with you. If you would open to Philippians chapter 2, we will look at the first 11 verses of those. In just a moment, I want to take a moment of privilege, if I may, unbeknownst to the one I'm going to uh, give a shout out to. Dr. T.J. Betts is in the building. I see him and I see Ann, and uh, Debbie mentioned to me that they had come in. And I am delighted that they are here. I don't have any idea if they knew that I would be doing this. They may have chosen a different Sunday, nevertheless. For a number of years, I owe a great uh, debt of favor and respect and appreciation to Dr. Betts. I have known him since the early 2000s when we were members together at uh, 9th and O. I've known his family in Ohio even longer than that. And uh, for a number of years at Harrison Hills, he supplied for me regularly. The folks love to have him come because he's an Old Testament guy, and they love to hear from the Old Testament. I preach from it some, but not a lot, and they delighted in his personality, and he and Ann are sweet, and we're just really, I'm glad to see you, brother. Thank you for being here today, you and Ann. Welcome to Oak Park. I was encouraged last week by Pastor Chase's sermon. He showed us how to read a psalm with Easter in mind. David's experiences help us deal with our circumstances. The Psalms are a sweet blessing for us. All the emotions that we can go through are covered there. And we learn how to lament. We learn how to confess. We learn how to express uh, concern or even complaint to the Lord in a way that he as our Father would understand and, and respond. So I'm thankful for that. And in Psalm 30, David testifies to how the Lord rescued him when his enemies had the upper hand. And as Pastor Chase pointed out, King David's life and experiences ultimately point us to a greater David. Today, I want to continue to reflect on the resurrection. We are one week removed from Easter, but just like at Christmas, we don't put that away. We want to continue to emphasize our thinking because Christ is still resurrected and he reigns in heaven. Amen? So I want to look at the life of experiences of the greater David this morning, King Jesus. It's in Philippians 2 that we find the report of Christ's humility which led him to the cross and ended in his exaltation. The New Testament makes clear that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is hard. It's hard for all of us because the human heart is bent towards self-satisfaction and self-exaltation, if I might say it that way. Jesus' humility certainly without equal in history, but there are snapshots. There are snapshots occasionally of great men exercising great humility, um, and I want to share one this morning just for illustration about Abraham Lincoln. I am a, I'm not a scholar, but I'm a great fan of Lincoln. I've read many things about him. He and Winston Churchill are probably my two favorite characters in history. That and two bucks and you go to Starbucks, you can't quite get a cup of coffee. Two dollars and a quarter and you go to Starbucks and you can get you a cup of coffee. But Lincoln, I'm a fan of Lincoln. I love Lincoln. I appreciate his times. I appreciate what he did for our nation. And here's the story about his humility. He had appointed General George McClellan as the army, as the general in chief of the army. And he was disappointed. McClellan was great for building armies and training them and drilling them. He was not so great at employing them. And so Lincoln was very frustrated. 
about uh, McClellan's lack of action, and so he decided to take two of his assistants and ride the short distance to the battlefield and pay a personal visit to his general that he might encourage him to use this 100,000-man army to do what they were assembled to do. He got there, and McClellan was not there. McClellan McClellan was at a wedding. So we begin to see the picture take shape here already. About an hour later, after Lincoln had been there, McClellan came in, and he went straight upstairs. He did not even acknowledge the president. He did not even acknowledge his commander-in-chief. He did not even acknowledge his boss. He just went straight upstairs. Half hour later, Lincoln sent one of his aides to tell McClellan that he was waiting, and the aide came back to tell uh, President Lincoln that the general had gone to bed. Lincoln's associates were enraged. They wanted uh, the president to act. They wanted him to remove him command from command, and Lincoln instead just decided to head back to Washington, D.C. And he said, this is no time to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity. I would gladly hold McClellan's horse if he would only bring us success. So Lincoln possessed what I would call a, a high attitude of loneliness, He would gladly surrender his own privilege to serve a greater cause. For the greater cause of holding the Union together, Lincoln was willing to humble himself before his subordinate. For the greater cause of the gospel and the glory of God, Paul calls believers to a life of humility in Philippians 2. Paul knew about humility. He knew the cost that it would bring. He was writing this letter from a house imprisonment, most likely, in Rome. The context of the letter deals with his desire to encourage the Philippian church, to thank them for their partnership in the gospel. Even though Paul was in jail, jail, we read in chapter 4 that the Philippian church had not abandoned him. They were continuing to support him. Don't go to jail, brother. Okay. Teasing. Paul loved this church. Maybe his most positive letter. The word joy in some form is mentioned about two dozen times. Still, like all churches, the Philippian church was made up of sinners and was not without problems. And so the end of chapter 1 hints for us at some dissension and disunity. Then in chapter 4, two ladies are called out by name, some type of disagreement. And Paul exhorts them to reconcile and he calls the church to come along beside them to help them come to agreement with one another. Paul knows that Satan will seek to use disunity and he will seek to use suffering as a means to rob believers of their joy. But that should not be the case. Paul stands for us as a historical model from the scripture that suffering and joy are joint experiences in a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul has learned to suffer well, if we can say it that way. Because he has learned that his joy is not contingent on his circumstance. Chapter 4, verse 11, Paul had learned in whatever situation he was to be content. His encouragement toward unity in chapter 2 is motivated by his desire for a greater joy. He, 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 He exhorts them to complete his joy. And in our passage, he moves from teaching about unity into teaching about humility. Those two very much go together. I plan to spend most of our time this morning in verses 5 through 11, but we need to have a little bit of context, and so I'm going to have a very quick summary of verses 1 through 4. Here's where we're going. Two points this morning. One is a call to unity, and that's essentially the first four verses to give us a little bit of context. 
And then we're going to deal with a call to humility for our essential encouragement and for application. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, verse 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm, I'm famous around here for lists, or maybe notorious. So here's the first one. I want to share three observations with you. They will not be on the screen. Three observations with you about unity. First, from this passage. First, in verse 1, unity is rooted in a shared relationship. I see four blessings in verse 1 that believers should enjoy. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from Christ's love. Participation or fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Affection and sympathy by implication from others and toward others. Paul recounts those blessings to remind the church that their unity is grounded in what they share through Jesus. And then in verse 2, he uses four phrases as he speaks the vocabulary of unity. The same mind, the same love, a full accord of one mind. Paul uses that vocabulary as he asks the Philippians... To complete his joy. So my second observation from verse 2 would be that unity in the church is essential to joy in the hearts of the leaders in the church. When we are in full accord and are of one mind, we help to complete the joy of our shepherds. When we are in conflict with one another, we affect the joy of their leadership. Verses 3 and 4 connect unity to humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Counting others more significant than ourselves is how we testify to the influence of Christ in our lives. It's not our natural way. So we testify to our love for Christ by counting others more significant than we are. Verse 4 echoes that attitude, and we should recognize verse 4 is just another way of expressing the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. So that quick summary we see by Jesus' example next, that, great, that humility is consistent with a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's interesting that Paul uses this great hymn in verses 6 through 11, mainly as an illustration about humility. For our edification and for our application, I want to look at the hymn that way then as a call to humility. Read with me beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two things that I would want us to consider as we look at uh, verses uh, 5 through 11. First, we want to look at Jesus' experience. We'll spend some time doing that in verses 6 through 8. And then we'll look at Jesus' exaltation in verses 9 through 11. 
the experience of Jesus. In this part, Paul begins with an exhortation, and then he follows with us for three expectations. The exhortation, Paul is, is clear. Have this mind among yourselves. The translation may say it slightly differently. Have the, this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul shines a spotlight on, uh, on, on Jesus' attitude to show us the model of Jesus' humility. Those who would live worthy of the gospel of Christ must seek to adopt this same mind or same attitude. And in this report on Jesus' experience, I see three ways for us to do that, or three expectations. First, we must surrender privilege, verse 6 and 7. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's significant for us. For all of eternity, Jesus had possessed every characteristic or trait of deity. He was equal with God. But to fulfill God's purpose in the redemption of man, Jesus chose not to hang on to that equality. A lot of buzz is out about the latest Marvel movie, Avengers Endgame, I think is the title of it. I've not seen it. I plan to. No spoilers, please. I plan to see it. I don't know. I know it's, I saw a lot of them go to dust in the previous. I don't know how many of those are going to be dust to dust or how many of them are going to come back. We'll wait and see. But let me discover that. I'm going to pay good money to see that, so let me discover that for myself, if you would. Most of the Marvel superheroes had to take on new powers to become superheroes. Thor got his hammer. The Iron Man got that very cool iron suit. Captain America got his shield. And the Hulk, he took on an extra, extra large green body and brought with that an extra large temper. Now, while the Marvel superheroes take on these new powers, Jesus made himself nothing. Jesus emptied himself of divine prerogative and power. And taking the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men. So our first expectation is to surrender privilege. And our second expectation is that those who desire to have the mind of Christ is to take on an attitude of servanthood. Emptied himself, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. My best understanding to see this, what's he talking about when he talks about making himself nothing or emptying himself? What's, going, what's Paul writing about there? My best understanding is to see that it refers to Jesus' status or Jesus' privilege. Much has been written about it. I encourage you to continue to study, to work it out for yourself. But Jesus never did surrender his nature or his attributes. He changed his role. He changed his status. But he never stopped being who he was. Let me say it this way. In coming to earth, Jesus chose to restrain or limit the full exercise of his divine power. Verse 7 continues then by telling us what happened when Jesus left the glory of heaven. He took on the firm of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Essentially, Jesus surrendered the privilege of deity to become a servant by taking on humanity. I think there's an implication for us there. When we take on the mind or the attitude of Christ, 
we gladly embrace a, a lesser status or a, a lesser privilege than we might otherwise possess. And we do this for the sake of serving others. Like Jesus, we exchange the notion of being served so that we might become a servant. Surrendering privilege, taking on servanthood, those are the attitudes of Christ. And they require, if we're going to adopt that attitude, to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must adopt one fundamental discipline. Being found in human form, verse 8, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if, if we would model ourselves after Christ, we must obey, no matter the cost to us. Jesus came at the Father's will. We sang about that. He came to give his life so that sinners like you and me could have eternal life. And what's especially sweet about that is he did so willingly. That's a heart that shows humility. Jesus' humility was motivated by his love for God and manifested by his obedience to God's will. He would obey knowing that his obedience would kill him and his death would be gruesome. The Roman cross was reserved for the worst of offenders. Those who commit crimes against the empire of Rome, enemies of the state, if you will, would be crucified. Jesus' obedience then would lead him to a very public death to exhibit the great power of Rome and to humiliate the offender. The cross was intended then to inflict great pain and bring about great shame. And when we speak about the humility of Jesus, talking about the cross raises above all other comments. Thinking about that this week, I, I, I don't think any of us will ever be nailed to a cross. I don't want to say that dogmatically. I can say it almost with great certainty, but I don't want to say it dogmatically because some of us, some of you, may go somewhere where um, you would be in jeopardy because of your faith of being crucified, killed. And that form of crucifixion we have seen, excuse me, that form of death we have seen has been particularly gruesome in various parts of the world. But I don't think any of us will have to experience the cross. But every believer is commanded to obey. It is our obedience that allows us to resemble, to adopt, to take on, to reflect the attitude of Christ, even though the cost for obedience may be high. Like Jesus, we obey the will of God out of love for God. That's how we live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verses 6 through 8, the first stanza, if you will, of this great hymn we read about Jesus' experience. And the second stanza sings about his exaltation. The first stanza sings about his humility. The second stanza shows us how God responded to his humility. Look with me in verse 9. Humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, looking back, God did this. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
God's response to Jesus' humility was to exalt Jesus, to highly exalt Jesus. We're going to use that word a lot from here on in. So I just want to define it as simply as I know how. It basically means to raise up or lift up. And in this, it's, it's in a context of the resurrection. All right? We're going to, you're going to hear that word a lot. So in verses 9 through 11, in the exaltation of Jesus, I want to outline it with two words, the word stature and the word authority. Jesus was granted a new stature in verse 9. Now, this new stature involved an exalted place and an exalted name. Both are there. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So first, let's consider the place. What can we know about this place that helps us delight and think and, and, and rejoice in this text? What can we know about it? I, I think we can think about its location. You should think this way because location is connected with exaltation. We're raised up somewhere. Jesus was raised up somewhere and placed somewhere. As I reflected on location, the book of Hebrews kept coming to mind. Because three times in that book that I saw, in a quick look, three times the exalted place is identified for us. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, in Hebrews 8, verse 1, and in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read that Jesus is now seated where? At the right hand of the throne of God. When I think about where Jesus sits, I see an image of God on his throne with Jesus sitting right next to him. I recognize, I recognize that picture is a little humanistic, but it helps me to visualize the place where Jesus is right now. It helps me devote and think and pray and be encouraged by knowing where he is. The bottom line for us is this, there is no higher place to which God could have exalted Jesus. Our sovereign has no equal in privilege or in power. And yet the author of Hebrews does not emphasize that. Instead, in the context of Jesus as a high priest, the author seems to emphasize Jesus as a minister of grace. A throne of grace and mercy that we can approach with confidence by the blood of Christ. At this time, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand as a guarantee of a better covenant that God has made through the cross and the resurrection. And he upholds this guarantee by interceding for his saints. That's grace, brothers and sisters. That's grace for us. Listen well as the author of Hebrews writes these things to encourage you. No matter how much we might try to imitate the attitude to adopt and have the mind of Christ, our efforts are always going to fall short of God's glory. Always. We need saving grace. Likewise, we need keeping grace. And for all who trust in Christ, both graces are promised to us. God highly exalted Jesus. With this exaltation to the highest place, God bestowed on Jesus the highest name. What is this name that's above all names? In the first place, the text points us to the name Jesus. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on earth and under the earth and in heaven, and every tongue 
would confess. So in the first place, the text points us to the name Jesus. We must not look past this name. After all, this Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. This Jesus is the suffering servant and the sovereign Savior. This Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. This Jesus is the good shepherd who is and who was and who is to come. This good Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The name of Jesus is the name in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So in the first place, I urge us not to skip past that name, Jesus. In the second place, I agree with the commentators who tend to say that the exalted name is Lord. After all, it is the lordship of Jesus that was granted to him, granted to the God-man at his resurrection. It is the lordship of Jesus that upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is the lordship that gives him authority over all of God's affairs in all of God's creation. It is his lordship that demands our obedience and our allegiance. So we have the name Jesus. We have the name Lord. We would debate which ones at play here in this text. That would be a fair debate, reasonable debate. Can I ask us this morning, can I be bold enough to ask us not to split hairs when it comes to deciding just which name is the highest name? Can I remind us that the same person holds both names? There is no separation in his person. There is no separation in his function. And as we reflect on the exaltation of Jesus, we note the extent of it. Look how far Jesus traveled from the lowliness of the cross to the highest place and the highest name in all of creation. And we must also reflect on the cause of this great exaltation. God exalted Jesus because Jesus voluntarily humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before I say more about Jesus' authority, I want to pause for a couple of implications. If you think about this hymn in its entirety, this hymn is doxology. This is holy ground that calls for our most fervent worship. When we come before the one who left all that he knew in heaven to come and be like you and me, to be our servant, so that he might die on a cross for your sins and for mine, not for his sins. And then he was highly exalted. God recognized and exalted Jesus for this humility and for this obedience. That's holy ground, and it calls for us to worship him. The eternal Son of God is the second person of the Trinity. He's enjoyed an eternal relationship and an eternal fellowship with God the Father. So Jesus was not esteemed higher in God's heart after his incarnation than he was before his incarnation. He was not loved more by God after his resurrection than he was before his resurrection. To think so would then begin to chip away at what the eternality of the Godhead really means. Jesus was not somehow paid for his servanthood. 
But God did bestow upon him an exalted name. I believe we are right to use this hymn for the purpose of worshiping Christ as Lord. That's doxology. And I believe we are also right to use this hymn to see that God is pleased by the humble obedience of his children. Now stay with me here. Because the second implication I would make about this hymn is that it is a hymn of assurance for us. Exaltation is promised for all believers. Stay with me. I know some of you, the little hairs are starting to pop up on the back of your neck. Hang on. Hang on. Exaltation is promised for all believers. Let me say it in in preacher language. In God's economy, the way up is down. There is no quid pro quo. Do not hear that. There is no word of faith or name it, claim it insinuations that I am making by these comments. The children of God can never, ever, ever make God a debtor because we have faith and obedience toward him. There is no covenant obligation on the God of all creation to reward our obedience or our faith. None. But he does. He does. We see him do that with Noah. We see him do that with Abraham. We see him do that with David and the prophets. We see him do that with the apostles. We see God exalt or raise up the other saints, named and unnamed, in Hebrews 11. Hebrews tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that God has prepared a city for us, and we seek the city that is to come by our humility and our obedience. Not as a work, but very much as an assurance. So we see the exaltation of Christ in this passage. We worship and we trust that we're blessed not only because of what Christ did, but because he is the first birth, first fruits of the resurrection. Believers are not exalted in the same way that Jesus is. Did you hear that? We're not exalted in the same way that Jesus is. But we will be exalted. I want to stay here for just a minute. We will be exalted. Jesus says so in Matthew 23, 12, as he chastises the scribes and the Pharisees. He says that again in two different parables in Luke, chapter 14 11, the parable of the wedding feast, chapter 18, verse 14, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. James attaches exaltation to humility in James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And Peter echoes that in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Proper time is a good phrase to help us get this right. As believers, we must realize our ultimate exaltation will occur only after our own resurrection. In this life, we remember in God's economy, the way up is down. Like Jesus, we choose humility and we choose obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray like Jesus did in John 17. And we trust like Paul writes in Romans 8 and the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11 that God will exalt us in his time for his glory. But if you've not yet trusted in Christ, if you're here this morning and and, uh, you're trying to make sense out of this, what does it mean to be exalted? What does all that mean? 
If you've not yet trusted in Christ, the promise of glory holds no power for you. Because verse 9 and 11 are true, we can put our absolute faith in what took place in verses 6 through 8. Paul says the same in 1 Corinthians 15 when he, when, he, when he defends the resurrection. And he says, for those who have faith but do not believe in the resurrection, their faith is empty and hopeless. Makes us a fool. The gospel says that God sent Christ to die for sinners. That's the testimony of verses 6 through 8. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that whoever would personally believe in what Jesus has done can have everlasting life. But that promise has no impact apart from repenting and placing your faith in him. That promise is only for those who believe in Jesus. Have you done that? If not, would you like to know more about that? I pray that you would. You can talk to me after. I'd be glad to open the scriptures with you and let the word of God speak to your heart. Pastor Chase, Pastor Joshua, Pastor Chris, many others in this room would be equally as capable, if not more, to sit down with you and talk to you about what it means to repent and trust in Christ. I pray that that would be your desire this morning if you have not already done so. I extend that call of the gospel to you this morning so that you might respond and believe in Jesus. We see in verse 9 that Jesus was exalted to a new stature, highest place with the highest name. In verse 10 and 11, along with this new stature, we see that Jesus was exalted to a new level of authority. I've already spoken into that to some degree, but we read, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. As the name was new, the authority was new, exaltation comes after resurrection. Let me have one more observation here about this new authority. The new authority is universal. No one escapes the lordship of Christ. Some will run to it in praise and gladness. Some will run from it in denial and rejection, but not forever. The Bible is clear. We read in Isaiah 45, we see again here in Philippians 2, Every knee in heaven and on the earth and above, excuse me, under the earth will bow before Jesus. Every tongue in heaven and on the earth and under the earth will confess before Jesus. Some will bow and confess in great joy. Others will bow and confess in great and eternal judgment. But all will acknowledge that Christ is Lord. Paul closes the hymn by reminding us of the ultimate aim. I'm not going to spend any time on this, but the ultimate aim of the exaltation of the Son is to bring glory to the Father. All that God does, saving you and saving me, sending Jesus from heaven, raising Jesus from the dead, exalting Jesus back into heaven, if we can use that expression. All of that was done to the glory of God the Father. Verses 6 through 11 is poetry. It has two stanzas, two messages. One stanza sings about the humility of Christ. 
The other stanza sings about the exaltation of Christ. One message identifies the model for a life that is worthy of the gospel. The other message calls us to worship the one who is the gospel. So we apply verse 5 by seeking the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. We apply verse 5 by doing everything that we can to adopt the attitude of Christ. Here, it is the ideal, extreme, um, supreme attitude of humility to the cross. But not just in that. We are to adopt his attitude in everything. We apply verses 6 through 8 by telling those who do not know Christ just what it is that Jesus has done for them. We apply verses 9 through 11 by bowing before Jesus Christ the Lord and worshiping him to God's glory. This is how believers live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. It is rich. It sings a great song of sacrifice by our Lord and our Savior. We, we cannot begin to comprehend the notion of emptying ourselves or being made nothing in the way that Jesus did. But we can pursue an attitude of counting others more significant than ourselves of looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We can assume an attitude of humility that's manifested in obedience to your will. Thank you for the words of assurance that come in verses 9 through 11. Father, we, we will not be exalted like Jesus is. In the resurrection of the believers, we will be lifted up. We will be raised up. And we look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to this Jesus so that we might have hope for our future and our eternal destination. Thank you for your word that teaches us that, Father. I pray you would honor it in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.